You're listening to the Nomcast, a proud member of Forgotten Entertainment. Hello, and welcome to the Nomcast, the Netflix original movie podcast. I am your host, Andrew Morgan. You can follow the show at NomcastPod on Twitter and Instagram, and you can check us out on the web at nomcastpod.com. All right, thanks for tuning in. As always, hope all of our U.S. listeners had a great Thanksgiving holiday. Christmas is the next holiday season that most people will be focusing on now, and even will start covering some of those films starting next week. But for film geeks like myself, we will also continue to get wrapped up in the movie awards season, and this week's episode is a special podcast crossover to get everyone in the spirit of the season. If you are a frequent listener of this show, you will know that The Power of the Dog, the anti-Western drama starring Benedict Cumberbatch and directed by Jane Campion, is a very important film for Netflix this year, and it's a film that many critics have noted as being their best chance at winning Best Picture at the Oscars this March. You might also remember that I got to see this film at New York Film Festival back in October, and I talked about that experience as a guest of the award-centric podcast, Mike, Mike, and Oscar, who I work with a lot as they are some of the best people to talk to this time of year. So what better way to talk about such a major Netflix awards film than to do a true crossover event with the boys over at MMO? And that's exactly what we did. Here's how it works. Both podcasts will release our review of The Power of the Dog, and it will have the same non-spoiler review section to start and the same spoiler section at the end. But in the middle of our episodes, we will bring you our own unique sections. On this podcast, you will hear Mike and I do an updated and comprehensive look at the best chances for Netflix films in the award season to come and discuss if the Netflix Big Three that we've been talking about on and off all year has changed since the beginning of the year. It was a spirited discussion full of great insight, so I hope you enjoy that in segment two of this episode. And if you want to hear more Oscars insight, head over to the Mike, Mike, and Oscar version of this review episode as they will have a Power of the Dog-centric Oscar lens segment that will go over how many nominations they're in contention for and what their best chances at winning will be come Oscar Sunday. We pulled out all the stops for this crossover, so I hope you enjoy it. Please check out The Power of the Dog on Netflix as it comes out today if you are listening on the day of release. And please enjoy our review of the film starting right now. Thanks again for listening. Welcome to another episode, another collaboration between the Nomcast and Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am also Mike, and I am joined today by Andrew Morgan of the NOM for <laughs> yet another discussion, yet another discussion about the power of the dog, something we enjoyed back New York Film Festival time, and we did a review as well as a you know box office report on MMO, on Oscar Race Checkpoint, that culminated kind of you know in our film festival experiences with the power of the dog but uh, today we're in for the full film study so i appreciate you doing this i appreciate this whole crossover idea for what we're doing for both our pods today andrew welcome we doggies eh fatso 
It's it's another uh, happy hot collabo. Thanks for doing this, man. I know I'm coming in hot and heavy. You're you're coming in a little undercut, man. I gotta jolt this back to life. Charge it. Yeah, we Good. we are gonna answer all the burning questions coming up. Watching what is an exciting awards contender for Netflix. So. Uh, you know, it excites both of us. It's right up our alley. But right up top, I got to ask you the most pressing question on all of my listeners' minds. <laughs> How about them Cowboys? <laughs> oh, no. You're one of those? <laughs> no, I'm a Jets fan, but I'm just being a jerk with your New York Giants hat staring me in the face. That's right. That's right. I deserve it. Uh, it's the crosstown thing that we uh, continually bring up. Uh, as often as possible on on this Oscars podcast, Mike and I, you and I, <laughs> exactly. uh, we can't help it, but we're we're fanatics, and that that word makes sense. Uh, I am <laughs> I am really looking forward to this kind of look back to this movie, and again, we're gonna stay non spoilers probably for about the first forty minutes. We're gonna have the same non spoiler review and the same spoiler review, and we're sandwiching something different for both of our pods. So on the Nobcast feed, we're going to discuss the overall Netflix slate in the middle of each of your episode. And then for MMO guys, we're going to do the Oscar lens and kind of talk that one out as we kind of handicap each part of what we uh, think will be nominated from the power of the dog. Whereas we'll talk about larger discussions of categories for your show. So I think there's a lot to bite into in this episode. Let's charge right in. Look, we have this New York Film Festival experience to go back to where Jane Campion was quite the character, as you mentioned. You were just team Campion yeah. after watching her speak for an hour in that Q&A, which I was able to enjoy last night uh, from the NYFF there. But she adapted this novel by Thomas Savage in 1967. She is the screenwriter here for The Power of the Dog. Uh, the stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, Cody Smith-McPhee, three of those four were at the festival smith mcphee was kind of the star of that q a i thought what did you think yeah I, he definitely stands out you know he, he's a big skinny kid like his presence on film is exactly what his presence is in in real life and it's hmm. fun to see him you know because you get so you know blinded by the stars right so you're seeing cumberbatch you're seeing dunce and here's cody smith mcphee who you know what do I know him from night like being Nightcrawler in the X-Men movies? Like, I, you know, I have a very limited scope of who he is as a person or an actor. He's not a huge star like everybody else. And yet he went toe to toe with these guys kind of like jabbing, even jabbing Jane Campion, which I thought was an interesting uh, way to approach a Q&A uh, to go after, you know, the the centerpiece there to, to be like, yeah, screw your story. I'm going to mess with you. The entire time and 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 show who he is as a true character and i've listened to um jane campion on npr too where she she praises cody smith mcphee up and down and and says that he in real life is actually more of an interesting character than even peter gordon is in this movie well it's a fascinating difference between how he's campaigning i guess because he, he has risen to the to the top of the supporting actor rankings and how benedict cumberbatch started his campaign kind of throughout these film festival interviews with how he was just very serious and answering all the questions and 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 very deferential to his his cast and crew there and and to campion herself so that was that was a fascinating watch i recommend it for people nyff on youtube there full hour talking about this movie as well 
The awards resume, though, is starting to stack up for the Power of the Dog. We have festival wins at uh, Palm Springs, where it won Best Film, San Sebastian as well, Cinematography at Toronto. It was the third runner-up, second runner-up for the Grolsch Audience Award there. Uh, it and was right behind, yeah. Uh, right behind. It was what? It was only behind... Uh, Belfast, right? No, what was the other Canadian film? Uh yeah, I remember. I just added it to my list. I forgot too. I can't pull up that giant Google document though, and I know <laughs> get but at yeah, that for yeah, us. You're right though. I think yeah. it may have come in uh, second or third somewhere around there. Anyway, uh, Jane Campion won Best Director at Venice. Uh, shout out to Eric Weber and the Sunset Circle Award noms, the first of the critic awards that come out. And Power of the Dog is four times nominated there. Director. Uh, picture supporting actor McPhee and cinematography. Otherwise, we got strong critical reception that is staying very strong. 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, 186 reviews. That's a big number of reviews. 76% audience rating on RT, and then 6.9 out of 10 on 5.6 thousand votes on IMDb. So, very well received. That has not that has not changed for a while, Andrew. Yeah, no, it, it's basically, if you look at Jane Campion's record, even of her previous films, you're seeing a commonality where the critics absolutely love her at her heights, which this one is you know, probably the best uh, rated of all her films, piano being right there with it. Um, but you're definitely seeing the, the differential between that and the audience reception, which is also uh, a common thing because... Her movies uh, are a, a rare breed. They are slow burns. They are subtle. They are uh, not for <laughs> the non-cinephile for the most part. Right. So you get this kind of uh, split personality in terms of the ratings between overall reception uh, and the critical reception. They are non-traditional narratives, and this is another literary adaptation. I did watch I did watch the pia- piano, or how do you pronounce it? Banana? banana is that is that anyway sure yeah if you want to put that's that a spoiler out. section joke i don't know what i'm doing here but i'm trying to add jokes because we were talking about before the show like well, like i bring the comedian on to talk about the most serious <laughs> like for whatever reason we talk about the most serious stuff on uh, together yeah uh when we should like be doing just farces and whatnot or yeah. sweet spot or just adam sandler like why am why am i not your adam sandler movie guest on netflix uh because you're, that deal? you don't want to be tortured <laughs> no, I think that's like my guilty pleasure. No, yeah. anyway, uh, we do have strange <laughs> narratives, un- non-traditional narratives. I would say off-key, uh, based on the piano types of stories told by James Campion throughout her career. Whether it's Top of the Lake, The Piano, uh, I think Bright Star, etc. The Power of the Dog is as polished one of those as we've seen yet. So I was. I was really interested in sinking my teeth into this rewatch. However, we had a hard time getting here, which is probably why we should have just requested the screeners. We didn't do that (laughs) because we wanted to go see it in theaters. But, dude, I had a 90-minute commute to this theater that is only 35 minutes away from uh, me typically. It was a 35-minute drive home. I wanted to get food beforehand because it's a nice little beautiful spot where there's all these restaurants. I got it afterwards. Don't I'm not a, you know, I didn't deprive myself of that. My fans are very happy for me in that <laughs> regard. They they're not surprised. Uh-huh. But I was hangry watching this movie, so that affected me. I know you had some issues with the 
theater as well, right? You you didn't have the greatest viewing experience on the rewatch. Yeah, I thought I I did everything I could to land on time. Uh, you know, mm. I, I even showed up early enough that I can you know get my my diet soda and some snackitude or whatever you know and and make it the true real cinema experience. And instead, I got the the opposite uh, of or like the 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 things that you don't want to talk about when it comes to the cinema experience like mm. other people or the people who work there or anything like that so like they started the movie early i was uh you know a 740 movie at 748 i walk in and the movie has already started i'm like whoa what happened to trailers um, dude so- it's confusing nowadays because amc is literally up upwards of 30 minutes of it's trailers. gross yeah mm-hmm and then some theaters, yeah, especially the Netflix movies. Like we saw, didn't we see The Heart of They Fall and there's no trailers? I don't remember. I saw a Netflix movie recently. It might have been Tick, Tick, Boom. Zero trailers. Yeah, same see, deal. wild. Uh, and then this one, you know, I walk in, somebody's in my seat. You know, it's like, and then they, uh, the people who are in my seat were like talking uh, during mm-hmm. like the first act throughout the whole first act before they left. So it was like, ah, this is, <laughs> this is not what Denis Villeneuve was saying when it's like, ah, we need the cinema experience. You know, it's like, no, no, no. Other people also ruin the, the theater experience. I get all the other, uh, accoutrement that goes with it, but not, not you, this part of it. You would think the diehards are going to see a Netflix movie days before, it releases on Netflix for everybody at home. Like, right. do we have to see this in the cinema? Uh, instead, you probably got the few people who just, you know, saw Cowboy Benedict Cumberbatch and were like, <laughs> I got to <laughs> Exactly. See All right. So we, so we did have strange viewing, second viewings. And I will say this. I, I think differences between those two viewings, like the first viewing for both of us, was very suspenseful for me and I'm sure thrilling for you because you're coming at it for a first time. I did, like a nerd, read the audiobook first, but even so, I was immersed, I was swept up in that first viewing in New York City, not so much with the second. Like, it definitely lost me a little bit here. How about yourself? Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to have the big come down from going to a New York Film Festival premiere with all the the stars in tow and them kind of like, you know, having the, the questions answered that maybe you had front and center right after. I mean, that's a right. big experience. Plus, you can't get a better haul than what you're watching this in. Perfect oh, yeah. sound and, 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 and picture. It's it's amazing. And then I also had done my rewatch of the piano the night before, so I was kind of already in campion mode. You know, because mm. if, you, if you don't <laughs> know her style <laughs> and you just roll up in that movie, that's going to be a little jarring, too. So I was in the right frame of mind, in the right place, with the right people, and it was the experience that you want. It's a movie that's a slow burn. It's a death by a thousand cuts type of approach, and it's going to hold a certain level of tension that, you know, with the score and everything else, like it all takes part right in your experience, and it was optimal. And then, you know... The next one, yeah, it's gonna you're gonna have a come down, but I didn't think I was gonna have as much a come down. But in a movie, as we'll get to uh, plot stuff later on, the movie takes you know a certain twist towards the end of the movie that mm-hmm. if you know what's going on, the second viewing is a very different experience, even just as a movie where it could have been anywhere, let alone at a lesser theater or you know a more. Uh, awkward experience with the general public it's a weird time 
that that Thanksgiving weekend rush kind of thing to watch a, the power of the dog. It's yeah. more akin to House of Gucci, like, <laughs> like kind of <laughs> half hate watch it, half lo- you know love the craziness, uh, kookiness of House of Gucci, where you you could brain your brain doesn't have to engage as much. So yeah, it might have it might not have been the optimal weekend for us to see it. However. I do think like December 1st, people start to get serious again as they ramp up back towards the holidays. There's a little lull. Maybe that Netflix awards release date is is more uh, suitable for a film like this. And that's probably, obviously, that's their priority. So I will say this, though. Something strange happened to me during my second viewing. And I'll tease it for a longer explanation and spoilers. But my allegiance switched characters in my my second viewing mm. whereas i i spent the first viewing deeply invested in two specific characters and on my rewatch i'm thoroughly in the camp of two others so th- i don't know if that happened to you but I, I i definitely had a different emotional experience the second time through yeah i think that's true especially knowing what you know after knowing the full plot and i mean you even had it doubled down like you said where you you know, did the audiobook experience too. So knowing the full yeah. plot and going through it, it's interesting even more to me of your permutations. But it makes sense, <laughs> even as a person who came into the story cold the first time, that there is a switch stance because you no longer have certain fears or tension that you thought you did in the first viewing of it. So now your analysis changes stance and we can get into that in more specifics later on absolutely uh so let's jump ahead to the performances and i think i'm stock up on two characters and and or two actors and then um i'm the same high esteem with benedict cumberbatch and i'm a little stocked down on a on a I'm the front runner now in supporting actor at Cody Smith McPhee, but I'm stock up on Jesse Plemons, stock up on Kirsten Dunst. Uh, you, you got your own uh, kind of stock up, stock down foursome here. Yeah, I mean, to me, the stock up uh, after watching it twice goes to Benedict Cumberbatch the most because, A, obviously he's at center of the frame for a large part of it, but he's mm-hmm. one of those things that even at rewatch, he controls the narrative so much in this movie that watching his performance and seeing him play all the different sides of a of a person who, you know, is in mourning. He's also mm-hmm. uh, a control freak. He, he lashes out. He's a bully. He's got so many different variables to him that it's interesting to see when they play those hands and at what time, uh, you know, and, and to whom. He's going to do those as well. So all those choices are really what's going to make the second viewing more enjoyable, I think. Um, Jesse Plemons, I think he also gets a little stock up, but I still don't. Uh, some people are putting him in the race. We'll get to Oscar Lenz stuff later, but I don't know if I see that quite yet. But for for this, though, I did think the, the nuances of his courtship in the early going definitely right. make the, the movie stand out or at least be more him than maybe later on in the movie and then yeah same high esteem for everyone else practically and 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 cody smith mcphee was probably my more high esteem from the last time um mostly because i didn't see him 
coming and I and I didn't know him much from since he was a boy in the road, you know, like way back when. Like I don't I don't have yeah. a great grasp on him as a performer. So well, that speaks to his abilities, right? Because I mean, yeah. if, we, if we looked at his IMDb DB right now, I'm sure there's like you 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 mentioned the road. I'm like, oh yeah, and you you mentioned something he did before. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, he's Nightcrawler. He the- okay, he's kind of hiding though, so it, it's it's exactly. a very different uh, feel for this. So it makes him stand out. So definitely between his very good performance and obviously his role in the film, the first viewing is going to be a little more higher up so i still hold them on high esteem same with kirsten dunce um and absolutely agree i think we we both agree uh why is thomas and mckenzie in this movie why is she here it's almost like she just said to jane campion i'll do anything for you because big part part small part i'm a huge fan i didn't listen to any of her interviews around this uh movie uh, so I, I'm wondering if that's the case or not. I, I'm going to have to seek that out. But she does make the most of one particular scene that I'll yeah. mention in spoilers, which I'm, I'm, I'm very happy for her. But, I mean, she's a huge star now. She's blowing up. So it's it's cool to just have her in this ensemble. Yeah. I will say... I will say Jesse Plemons, I, I'm noticing more of the subtleties in his performance. So I, I'm more in, in, in his camp with this movie. Cumberbatch, I think the dimensions of his character are becoming more clearer to me, even though he was like this monster in the first watch. Second watch, I'm kind of studying him more, whereas I'm I'm not studying Cody Smith McPhee's Peter character as much. So it's right. it's fascinating how that happens, and it's very cool how Mike and I set up our schedule where we kind of come back and rewatch these for three months. And it, <laughs> yeah, we do go on these roller coasters where we start to you know put the microscope on one performance or another. So that that's that's a fun part of our year, and I, I'm kind of psychoanalyzing myself now and how I watch these movies and we have all these meta jokes. This is a very meta podcast so far. Yeah. We're referring back to the last episode a month ago and it's almost like a Mike Mike one should be here. I, he wishes he was here, folks, by the way. I didn't mention that at the top of the show. Uh, it came down uh, ill and and then he just couldn't squeeze in the uh, the rec- uh, the viewing of the movie and I don't blame him. I, I think I scared him away, by the way. 90 minute <laughs> drive. <laughs> Poor guy. It's like he can't go sick and 90 minutes. It's just not in these times. It's not even responsible. So, for sure. all right, let's let's dive into production values for a minute. I have two standouts that, that I still marvel at. Number one, cinematography. I didn't realize this was New Zealand, uh, but it is <laughs> New Zealand as a stand-in for Montana. I don't know how Ari Wegner gets so much in focus like she has the moving herds and typically a typical cinematic focus you got to focus adjuster right there's a whole job for that maybe 10 jobs for it where someone else is pulling the focus for her but she gets the wind you you see the mountains behind particular characters in most in some shots and you see the wind moving on the mountains you see the sunlight you see all of it in this fine detail and then you you know in other scenes you're seeing almost every inch of Benedict Cumberdale. It's it's <laughs> really it's really something to just you know drop your jaw. The cinematography on the power of the dog. Yeah, Wagner was also in the Q and A uh, at New York Film Festival as well, and they definitely talked about the painstakingly long process it was to 
scout locations to match the vision that they had for this film. And I agree, it completely paid off. You know, the vistas, I mean, if if people were in love with kind of the, the nomad land of it all last year, you know, with these giant, you know, uh, vistas that they like to do in the perfect lighting and all that stuff, you're getting the, you know, New Zealand as, you know, Montana ranch version of that where you're getting you know perfect lighting perfect times of day uh a, like you said tons of things in focus almost in a in a i used to marvel how spielberg's movies early on could do that a lot too and, and i agree with you that it is incredibly impressive but this is not watching uh, city slickers this is getting the, the <laughs> full-on uh you know version of what it is to capture uh, a 1920s ranch uh, while also making it not only just beautiful and informative, but also match the tone of the movie and keep things interesting when it easily could be, you know, something that seems repetitive and flat. I- I'm just laughing at your analogy there <laughs> while you're saying all these serious and beautiful and critical things because I'm picturing John Lovitz filmed in the <laughs> yes. same way Benedict Cumberbatch with the <laughs> backdrop of all the you know, the herds and the wind and, and like I said all the elemental uh, beautiful things that she somehow has you know detail finer details on I I am uh, I'm very impressed with the visuals of this movie <laughs> even still even 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 hangry after a 90 minute drive I'm still agape a at what they show us the other area that just I, I underestimated after a first watch and and I do typically this plays on me uh almost in my subconscious and I'm not I'm kind of score deaf is the music of this film I I know I made a lot about the end credits and after you kind of get through the main cast you get that Johnny Greenwood guitar rumble and I, it's hypnotic but there's so much more here there's a Spotify playlist that I've been listening to all the instrumentals like I'm gonna hear the piano melody on my deathbed. I really am <laughs> yeah. from this movie and from the banana. But I, I think there's <laughs> so much more he's doing to kind of craft these scenes and to tell this story. And, and you forget how much music any movie needs, but especially something like this, where you're, yeah, it, it really is a test on your psyche. Yeah, like I mentioned, you know, Campion's films rely on this a lot because she likes to do, you know slow burns, very subtle things to build tension or to slowly build the narrative as you're as you're getting more of a an explosive ending of what she likes to do, much like like kind of like a classic thriller. And this movie in particular, you know, the plucky guitar with the haunting sharp violin layered over it, it matches the film brilliantly because it conveys, you know, this t- kind of time-accurate Americana mixed with, you know, the rawhide rope tension of more of the <laughs> orchestral additions that Johnny Greenwood puts in there. And, and I definitely like the blend, and I like definitely when they hit those more intense, you know, almost nails on a chalkboard trying to hit you <laughs> moments that definitely work in this movie. I think when we go back to looking at this whole era of films. We're going to mention Johnny Greenwood as as a transition from kind of the, you know, the typical big orchestra feel of all these studio movies and getting, you know, Paul Thomas and Anderson scores from There Will Be Blood towards this kind of new sound that we've been getting 
uh, and these unique sounds and, and these unique scores we've been getting, and a lot of Netflix movies for that matter. I, I, again, I think the passing score is something that I'm going to remember. That flutter on the piano, yeah. I'm going to remember so, forever. I feel like so. I just I'm a big fan of Netflix scores this year. I hope they get nominated. I hope Greenwood gets in here. I hope he doesn't get cannibalized. We'll talk about it in the next two segments. Yeah, I'm also stock up on two more. Uh, costume design. I felt like I noticed more of the the detail in that. It's, I mean, just the gloves that they feature at one point. The uh, the chaps was probably something I always noticed because people don't wear chaps anymore. <laughs> yeah. By the way. Yeah. But uh-huh. I mean, the coats and the dresses, I am right I now. Hear. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You as one would yeah. uh, for a podcast. Uh, <laughs> Trying to be in I character, guess. just like you know, Benedict went full meta. I got to do the same thing, Mike. It's just who I am. It would depend on the chair, though, for me, I think. Uh, anyway, I, I, I'm all about the production design <laughs> and the costume design uh-huh. after this after this rewatch. Yeah, I'm into it. Uh, you know, uh, the costume design, I didn't feel the same as you, I, you know, because to me, cowboy, cowboy up, you know, that's what they're going to do. Uh, you know, <laughs> you didn't that's... hone in on the chaps. You just you, no. you, you have your own. All right. Yeah, exactly. It. You know, I, it's just uh, it's just a part of me now. So but. I would say, you know, naked mud bats are going to stand out more than maybe when the clothes are on, maybe. Um, but the uh, the high esteem for the production design, I absolutely agree. kind of goes back to what we were saying about the cinematography. You know, you can't get that if you're not doing hand-in-hand with the production design. And it's so hard to make a sprawling 1920s cattle ranch seem distinct from scene to scene. And they definitely did that because you're trying to paint a picture of kind of almost this, this family that seems very fractured in a way of yeah. them trying to him, especially uh, Phil Burbank trying to downplay his education and his wealth in that family and their esteem while also having it be uh, a cattle ranch and, and all the the things that come with that. And then the, the subtle complexities of what Phil kept behind from Bronco Henry and, uh, you know, even the piano stuff and everything else, all those rooms, everything seems very distinct and you don't get that without the production design here. I, I'm hoping they get nominated. And speaking of that, we're going to dive into an Oscar lens. We're going to dive into the Netflix awards conversation in a minute. I do want to remind folks that we will have different middles to this episode. If that's a pain in the ass, I apologize. We're trying to figure out how to do the crossovers for these <laughs> you know, movie review type shows, but we are going to do an MMO style Oscar lens. We're going to focus on the power of the dog uh, for, for my show and for Andrew's show. We're going to do kind of a, an update to the ongoing conversation we've had on several uh, different stops along the way of both our podcast feeds where we've talked about the Netflix big three, what their award slate's going to be. We're going to dive into a couple different categories there, like uh, international feature documentary animated as well. So, you know, I guess the last question I would have before we dive into both of those segments, and I think you'll play a promo, but we want to recommend this movie to people, even still, even, even if they don't if they have to travel 90 minutes for instance, but what would be the ideal setting for you in watching this movie or the ideal mood? Is it a Tuesday night movie for you? Is it a Wednesday? <laughs> I'm always curious to ask people this question. Is it a Friday night movie? I don't know. Is it a Saturday afternoon? When would you when would you recommend like your brother watch this movie or your your, your parents or your friends? Yeah, I mean I, I would say especially if you're unfamiliar with the style 
of Jane Campion and kind of how she's going to play this movie, I feel you need to tune the world out. So whatever day you're doing that, if you, if it's Friday night and you're trying to watch it with a, a bunch of different people, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't do that. Do that. Watch, <laughs> watch King Richard. Watch Belfast. Watch, you know, Tick, Tick, Boom. Watch uh, some kind of crowd pleaser. You know, get all your jollies off that way. However, Got this it. movie is not that. This movie is full concentration, uh, immersive experience that you need to kind of just hone in on on the details and follow the story without, you know, kind of losing focus. So don't second screen, don't do any of that. I recommend that for any movie, but, you know, definitely not this movie right. because the details are what make this movie work and and the score and everything else. So, you know, as optimal an experience as you can, because like I said, uh, even on my second uh, cinema experience, it wasn't as good and it kind of made the, the movie go down. So I'm interested in the Netflix of it all in terms of watching it at home. If you don't have like a good setup, whether this is, you know, ideal conditions for this, I have a lot of thoughts on what this is going to do on Netflix and if it matters and all that stuff, but definitely keep it tight, (laughs) focus up and and enjoy the ride, especially on that first viewing. Hey there, I'm Mr. Black and I'm Mr. Green. And we're a couple of guys who met in a comic book store. Together, we host the Pint O Comics podcast, where we invite listeners to join us to talk about movies, TV, comics, music, or just whatever. Starting very soon, we'll be joining up with the fine folks at Forgotten Entertainment for a special limited series called On the QT, where we talk Tarantino. Every week for 10 weeks, a guest will join us to chat about every Quentin Tarantino movie from Reservoir Dogs to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So join us starting in May 2021. On the QT is available wherever you download your podcasts and is part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Ooh, that's a bingo. All right. Thank you for the huge discussion we just had on MMO. And thank you for this crossover idea. I do want to sink our teeth into the Netflix conversation that we've been having several times now, once on your show, once on mine, about the big three, about the award slate. I just love, I love these power ranking things. I I did it to to where I (laughs) power ranked my own segment on on the Oscar lens. And now we're going to power rank kind of Netflix contenders because there's such a deep bench, Andrew. And I'm really glad for you. I'm glad for you because (laughs) A, it helps the uh, Nomcast. But also, like, there seems like more awards possibilities than I think we both thought, even though we knew it had a deep bench, even, even with some disappointments at the beginning of the fall. You really have somebody in every category just about, yeah. and not just, you know, to- token nominations from Netflix, but contenders, I would say. The Power of the Dog being my argument from 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 MMO. Is that first still in your brain as a, as the, I mean, it's in the big three, right? But is it first for you in, for, in terms of best picture, in terms of your big three? I think so. I mean, because when you talk about the competition for it, this is going to be an interesting year overall, and I kind of want your your thoughts on this as a concept, too, because the next ones that Netflix has coming down the line, Don't yeah. Look Up seems to be the n- hard number two, right? It's kind of seems like it's locked potentially. in. Potentially, right. Right, potentially. And, and why I say that more emphatically, I guess, is based on the early returns seem to be pretty positive. Um, if you like Adam McKay, you know, and what he does and his politics and everything else, 
it seems like you're going to have a good time, at least right. with this movie, whether that means Oscar success or not is kind of where I was kind of moving towards where, you know, in a year where you're going to have Don't Look Up, you're going to have Licorice Pizza, you're going to have some of these where they're not fully traditionally like kind of Oscar-ish movies, but they're made by craftsmen who they absolutely love. And it's in a weaker year where you're definitely going to get 10 nominations. So is this something to where you're like, these are are better at getting nominated maybe than win, but maybe in a year where maybe you don't have a consensus, number one, this big, you know, to-do juggernaut, and obviously we went over all the merits of that with Power of the Dog, but does that open it up to where a Don't Look Up or a tick tick boom perhaps uh that seems to be climbing um could you know move some stuff up or you know because even stuff that's quote unquote uh crowd pleasers this year Mm -hmm. belfast yeah super crowd pleasing to see a riot in the middle of belfast (laughs) during a civil war uh you know or having a kid threatened uh, or whatever so you know Yes, there are crowd-pleasing elements of it, but I always laugh when it's like, yeah, yeah. Not every aspect of that movie is very crowd-pleasing, quote-unquote. Um, you know, King Richard literally is just as dominating in terms of being a crowd-pleaser uh, from the start to finish because there, as much as there is no competition for the Williams sisters, there's no competition in the movie enough to make enough drama for me. But uh, that movie is definitely, it's exactly what you want if, if you're just looking to, you know, have fun performances and, and see a, a a good story, you know. So that that's an awesome setup here because I think best picture, I think best picture is up for grabs still. I think so. And I and I say that which it it does besmirch all the names you've mentioned, all these movies <laughs> that you mentioned, because I do yeah. think we're waiting for a movie to pop. We're waiting for a movie to pop like a parasite because it just can't. We can't look back at the last five years and not say that Parasite uh, had this groundswell. And we all ignored it for all these other narratives, right? All the typical, like Belfast and Green Book and, and 1917, they feel like the typical Oscar winner in Best Picture. We overthought yeah. ourselves when, in fact, I do think a younger Academy, I do think uh, after the pandemic and everybody is kind of in... Let's just say they're ornery. I think people <laughs> are going to just vote their conscience this year. And they're just yeah. going like, to screw it. I don't care what you say I have to do. I'm going to do what I want to do at this point. Because I'm gonna. I'm just going to say, this is my favorite movie of the year. I'm going to vote for that. And I, yeah. I think people just don't give any Fs this year. So what does that mean? Does that mean they're going to go for the hardcore artsy film the adaptation the beautiful make me cry movie and the power of the dog could be in that lane does it mean they're gonna go to the preach the choir satire don't look up or does it mean like a tick tick boom it's gonna continue to rise and it it really landed well on on the academy and and dove into a bunch of categories where people didn't expect it to be us included i mean it has done that lately well, here's here's some of the things that I'm looking right about the whole Netflix of it all. Okay. Yeah. As far as some of these competitors, because the last time we had these conversations, Mike, we were like, "We'll wait and see," because a lot of these things did not. The come Starling, out. we were like, "This is what I was like." <laughs> yeah, the Starling, <laughs> Melfi of Hidden Figures, and 
and the the doctor on the Sopranos, her son, and right. yes, I mean clearly he has the pedigree with this movie <laughs> with uh, Melissa McCarthy, and there's no way this is bad. And even though it came out in September, yeah, the trailer made me cry, Mike, and then the movie is like, what? What are we doing here? So, so it it made yeah. no sense. But then we got a bunch of these, right? I think. I think, and again, I'm going based on not only my own feelings, but also kind of the gold derby rankings of it all and everything else. It right. seems like the harder they fall kind of has come and gone. It, it was a movie that was received well enough, but it doesn't seem to be in the Oscar category of things or the award season category of things. You can try, and you know, for an ensemble like that, you may be able to pick out like a performance or here, but I think there is enough competition that right. it didn't make enough noise for anyone in particular to really stand out to be like, yes, let's let's put this person in there. So I think that falls to the wayside. I, I want to rewatch it, though. Can I just say that? Uh, the sure. harder they fall, I want to rewatch it. I want to study it. We did think, like, cinematography and costumes and production design there, they should have been in, in, in conversations. The question becomes, do you watch the film? It's a little over long. Yeah. yeah. Now, does it play? Does it it's, play it, on the Academy on a one watch? It's messy. So, yeah, you're talking about one watch and who stands out in that movie. I can't say for for any certain things. For like, a nomination. Were, like, yeah, right, for I, a nomination. I mean, we, there are people who stand out. Like, I thought right. Idris Elba is very compelling. But, Loved again, them. he's gone for a big stretch of the movie. You know, Regina right. King's very good, you know, being her own black hat self. She, you know, she's a badass. Do I put her in there a for boss. best supporting? No, I don't. I wish. I, I wish. wish. I, but yeah, I don't I wanted... think it's going to happen. Yeah, I want, I want, but then again, like Idris Elba is going to be there for me in my five. Like, I don't know why he's not getting the traction. Well, I mean, I know why, because it's not the profile movie. It's a big action film that I think people were hoping would be more of a awards film. But what is that this year? What is, you know, that's the thing. Like, I wonder if the, my theory on the don't give any F's. (laughs) academy this year will just say you know what the harder they fall was badass i want it for cinematography supporting actor and uh costumes no matter what and i will remember that movie and it won't be forgotten but like you said nobody was in the theaters for it it didn't play that many festivals we as we know that's like that's it did it get the exposure it needed or is it lost in the shuffle i think it's just lost in the shuffle i mean and you're also looking at it's lost in the Netflix shuffle because we're going to talk mm-hmm. about, you know, six or seven other movies that have much more of a possibility than that movie does. Uh, a, a few other examples. Bruise just came out over the Thanksgiving holiday, and now I'm starting to be truly convinced and now they think the Thanksgiving slot is a death nail because Bruise was a mess uh, to me. And yeah. we, I didn't review it on my podcast yet, but to me... That story didn't make a whole lot of sense. I think if you're looking at Holly Berry for this, I, I don't get it. I really don't. I mean, she really? does she does a transformation, truly. Um, but I thought there's so much wrong with that movie that it's it, it's not it doesn't have enough merit to elevate her. And this movie, if you're talking about I, I think one of my biggest problems with it, the the script was originally written for a, a mid twenties irish fighter and yeah. they converted it to now a 55 year old playing what a 40 
45 year old she's in the shape to do it i believe that but does she have the speed does she have the well that's the thing i'm such a tail of the tape and i'm a fight guy i became a fight guy during the pandemic so right i have not watched it yet i've been afraid to and i literally watched boxing matches uh saturday night after i stopped listening to new that's my weird life i listen to a new york <laughs> film festival q a right and then i watch a pay-per-view yeah, I'm a weirdo. I hey, just, you and I, I were it. both getting drunk watching the Beatles last night. We're we're all we over t- the map right now because content is everywhere. It's everywhere. But, it's so much, and like it's so much on this uh, this Netflix slate. Yeah, which so again to my point, I think it's just going to get ignored. I I don't think she does enough. I don't think the movie's good enough. So that one falls out of favor. The early returns on the Unforgivable are unfor- <laughs> are unforgivable too. Like they kind of uh, you. Uh, made a point about this movie where you had watched the BBC miniseries, I believe you said? No, I had or that not you watched knew it. About I, it I, but, yeah. I knew Nora Finkscheit's first movie, System Crasher, when For I was sure. a, and I was a big fan of that. So that right, so I'm basically watching. The Unforgivable was based on, a, I believe, a BBC miniseries, and the, the you could be like, oh, well, they trying to compact a series into a film, therefore it might be, it might not work. Right. You could say like, oh, they had so much more time in the series. The series is only about two and a half hours total. So mm-hmm. it's like a three part series. So it's not anything where it should have been unadaptable. And yet people are saying you would think that the series was like eight hours long and they had to try to compress time. Oh no! So uh, it's getting a lot of those type of reviews. So I haven't seen it. I can't write it off yet. And obviously Viola Davis, Sandra Bullock, things like that are in play, but and Rob Morgan or, or any of these. But man, <laughs> that movie seems yeah, to be getting destroyed. Uh, well, but th- in a you sense. know, this does happen every year, though. We some films we, we we have a swath of of movies, and some rise and some fall, and that makes sense. It's a little. I'm dismayed that some people I like in in this regard are falling, but we do have a couple of risers, I would say, or people that that uh, believe that that like the next wave of or the next tier of Netflix films should be there. And the Lost Daughter, The Hand of God, and Passing, uh, one of which you reviewed on your show, one of which we reviewed on my show already, they seem to be that next tier, and they seem to be involved in some major categories too as contenders still. Yeah, like I I mentioned to you, like it's gonna come down to best adapted screenplay. I kind of <laughs> had this. Well, it, and bet- and before we even get to there, I think it's gonna be a very fun. I said this on my podcast, the Gotham's, <laughs> which is uh, tonight, I believe, as we're recording. Tonight, this. as we're recording, you guys will know already. And so MMO will actually build on your theory. We'll respond to your theory on our weekend show. By the way, on the next Oscar race checkpoint. Thank you for letting me tease that and inject this. Oh, uh, please, extra teaser in there. So that no, I love this theory. We did the pre-show. Please give it to me again. Yeah, so I think the Gotham's will be a loser goes home match between <laughs> the lost daughter and passing because right now you're seeing they think I think they both have five nominations apiece to lead the pack in there. So and in a lot of the categories they do overlap. So right. it'll be interesting to see who kind of comes out on top, who steals the narrative to kind of get a boost. Either you're going to see lost daughter get a boost before its release at the end of December. It's literally the last Netflix movie of the year. Or mm-hmm. uh, you're going to see Passing get a much-needed boost after it already came out on Netflix and will probably not get another boost unless they get a bunch of critical stuff towards the end of the year 
for a long time. So if you think that someone like Ruth Nega will have a possibility or maybe even something more like an adapted screenplay, passing has to win tonight. So right. Lost Daughter, I think, can maybe get stuff later because it already uh, got some notice. Uh, I believe it was Venice, right, that they won uh, best screenplay out there. Yes, it has the higher profile. Let's be right. honest. So, does, so yeah. that is going to be an interesting thing. And then I will also say, will it even matter when Tick Tick Boom continues to get stellar reviews with a best actor worthy performance from Andrew Garfield? Is is that going to steal the lunch from Lost Daughter and Passing before we even get to all these conversations of the shakeout of the Gotham's? Because all three movies are mm-hmm. up for kind of the thought of best adapted screenplay. And if you're looking at the current <laughs> rankings of them all, the the Lost Daughter seems yeah. to be the one that has top five potential because it has that, you know, kind of ranking on Gold Derby and some other places right now. Mm-hmm. Passing is the next tier down. And then I say for some reason, Tick, Tick, Boom is much lower. Yet, Tick, Tick, Boom is also a film that's climbing the best yeah. picture rankings at Gold Derby. I believe it's number 13 right now and in a year where we're getting 10 solid. So, Which has got to be fun for you because that, that seems like a dark horse, not just for a nomination, but a contender because it's such a crowd pleaser and it has that Broadway factor to, that everybody loves and it has the tribute factor, my God. Oh, and Mike, it, it's in my heart. <laughs> it's going to be the one that breaks my heart because it's arguably one of the most rewatchable movies Netflix has ever made. Yeah, it, I did re look at I did rewatch it and I did like it more because I was like you know Mike was Mike was lukewarm on it and I was I was a little higher than him on our review but I I did rewatch it the other night and I was like wow this is a lot of fun and it's got that moment too in the middle of the movie where you're yeah. just like oh this made me cry so yeah. th- that you were, will remember too. And here's the thing Mike, I'm a film head. I am not mm-hmm. a theater kid. I can say from every review I've heard or read that if you're a theater kid, you're, you love this movie, but I am here to say I'm a film head. I'm not a theater kid and I love this movie and I don't love musicals in general. In fact, the Jonathan Larson of it all, which is hilarious. I don't love rent. I don't love his best work. (laughs) And yet here I am going, you know that uh, off-Broadway thing that didn't quite work for a lot of people? This is a great movie, and <laughs> it's, it's yeah. insane. Uh, and I think Garfield is tremendous, and the fact that we didn't really know his singing ability and he comes out nailing all these songs and just being electric on a spring the whole movie uh, is those type of showy performances that can get you not only nominated but to the top of the heap. So I think right now he has the best chance to win if your name isn't Will Smith. You can maybe argue Benedict Cumberbatch, but man, if you read uh, like film Twitter and everything else that I've read where everybody praised this one thing, but I didn't see that kind of same praise for Cumberbatch coming out of uh, you know all the film festivals. Right. I don't know. Uh, you tell me, and especially the voters, you know, a lot of them is the actor, uh, you know, branch or or people from overseas where maybe Garfield has a little more praise. <sighs> it's tough. And and then, you know, the scores, if you line them up side mm-hmm. by side with King Richard, Belfast, and Coda, all these other crowd pleasers, mm. they're pretty close. They're all same, same. I literally did them out because I was on Twitter being a uh, angry Twitter guy being like, why is this movie being ignored? That um, speaks to so. my own grades, though. I, can I, I just want to 
chance to pat myself on the back mid rant sure. here, the mid gush, which yeah. I, I applaud yes. you for, but I, yeah. I, I I approve because a lot of my movies are all like B plus 89s, right? Like that's a yeah. top tier for me this year and Coda's involved and a lot of those names you mentioned, Belfast and King Richard are involved as well. And Tick, Tick, Boom is an 88 and then I'm, I'm rewatching it and I'm considering it rising in my esteem despite my co-host. So I don't know if I should do that yet where I'm at, but I do, I do think and I have a very academic, you know, experience with theater. I guess back when I was in school, and sure. and, and since then, so I, I wasn't a theater kid. I probably should have been. I was a bad <laughs> athlete instead. I'm a very mediocre athlete <laughs> for whatever reason. I got forced into doing that, but I, I didn't. Uh, you know, I, I wish I you know could enjoy that even more. Now that being said. I do recognize all those faces in Tick Tick Boom, and it, that it, that's something special, where it, where the it has that it, X factor, that it factor, where things could rise. I wonder if the Lost Daughter has that. Passing might have that. In fact, if it does get momentum, like you're saying, and and where I can lend my expertise, I think is in the whole awards season scope of it all. Like you're saying, the kickoff here is very important for passing. Right. Is it gonna get? independent film awards throughout the season. And if it wins at the Gotham's and if it comes out a big winner there, it really could catapult it into must see status. And therefore, if anybody watches that movie, they're going to notice how good Ruth Nega is. They're going to notice how good that cinematography is, yeah. how good the costumes are, etc. Just like I said, with the harder they fall, but are they noticing? That's the question. The lost daughter maybe does not have the same problem because it played so well at so many film festivals. The Hand of God got polarizing reviews at some festivals. Right. So does that need, now need kind of the the international branch and the internet? I'm glad it got selected. That was a must selection for Italy there from the Hand of God. But yeah, it's got pundits on its side. You know, all all six of those movies have pundits on their side. So the question becomes: Who gets the bump and who gets the shelf life? Yeah, uh, for audiences that that will speak to the Academy uh, ultimately, and and we've always said the Academy went to film festivals this year. The industry was showed up. That was new. That you know that was or back to normal. I should say not new. Back to normal. Right. It was new that they all did it virtually the year before, and who knows how many were involved. I, I think I mean, looking at that Oscars, I think they were. But to a degree this year, we can read the festival buzz. And we can follow that better this year than we could last year, I would say. Right. Uh, even though it, it, it paid off for the big winner, Nomadland, on that sweep. But it did not pay off necessarily for you know, some other categories. Which is the tough I, part about Tick, Tick, Boom, because it didn't release until AFI, why? like right before it came out. And now I, I really don't know why. And I'm I, this is a tough thing. We were talking about the harder they fall. That went to, you know, BFI, and, and right. it didn't like do like a, a big... Uh, to do number out there, it's kind of you know off the major film festival track. So you could see where Netflix made their stand, right? The ones that were on the periphery, some of them they were like, "Hey, we have stars in it, so we'll send them to to to, to uh, Toronto." In uh, the Guilty, the Starling, you know, uh, some of these where they're like, "Yeah, let's give it a shot." You know, harder they fall, they send it to BFI, and it's like, "All right, I made some noise," but you know, ultimately we're not that invested in it as yeah. an awards contender lost daughter and power of the dog early went to the big festivals so did hand of god and because that's where they wanted these things to land and to start their conversations early passing was an acquisition 
uh, so yeah. was Lost Daughter, but passing out of Sundance. So that had a harder path because it had to go through a full year of where do we try to get the conversation restarted before yep. it gets on on Netflix again. Um, and Tick, Tick, Boom is an interesting one because if it if it was ready to make a, a stand, I, I don't know why they didn't put that in Toronto. That makes way more sense there. AFI, they did it because they could be opening night and make a big splash. I get that. But so at the why same would time, they do that, though? They thought it was a, 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 a hit, a clicks getter? They didn't think it was a contender. I or- think. And, and, and this is the interesting thing now, Mike. Tell me this. So if it premiered at AFI, does that mean it probably wasn't eligible for the Gothams? Because isn't that a Gothams, like a slam dunk? Or is it yeah. not hit the hit the 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 category like the the uh, rules of the Gotham's, which is kind of elusive to me. I don't think it hits the rules of the Gotham's because I think that's a twenty million dollar threshold, and you got Lin Manuel Miranda. I don't. It was it more than twenty million dollars? I don't remember. I'd have to look. I don't know. There's this, so it's like outside of the indie film thresholds. It seems, at least on first glance. So I don't. I, again, I mean, it's stuff for Oscar checkpoints of the future where we dive into the weeds on this. But yeah. it's fascinating that we're getting into the tick tick boom discussion here. But I'm I'm into it because <laughs> I know I'm with I'm with you dog. in reading the room. <laughs> yeah, we're on the power of the dog show. But yeah. reading the room, tick tick. I don't I don't mean to rhyme here, but tick tick boom should kind of continue to rise and i do think netflix is kicking themselves they didn't necessarily know what they had there they didn't maybe that's a fun surprise that they can now get behind where they're like tick tick boom could do more damage than we thought so we got to see what these critical awards this next wave of uh, this first wave of kind of nominations from the critics do they give passing the boost do they give tick tick boom that boost does the lost daughter in the hand of god do they stay alive you know that's gonna matter it's gonna matter in a big way and and does don't look up like the conversations around don't look up were is it an awards movie and now everybody's like oh it is an awards movie but what's the upside on that right you know what's the upside on that where are we are we left at the end of the day where you have a mank or a Roma and you don't have the contender that you want necessarily go up with the audience award winning films from all these festivals, which I thought, and I think now hindsight is 2020 tick, tick, boom could have been on the same level as those. Just again, reading film, Twitter, reading the room. Like we saw King Richard get this audience award. We saw Belfast get that one. Tick, tick, boom could have gotten, a couple of those audience award winners. And I think it did win something or, or, or other. Anyway, I, it will win something or other. It did not. I'm, I'm misremembering because it didn't play any festivals. Well, played it's AFI, going to win. but I don't know if it, I don't think it got right. anything I don't from think that one. So yeah. I'm and misremembering. Yeah. The interesting thing to see also is if West side story being the Ricardos or nightmare alley, say one or two of those are just good, not great. Maybe not yeah. in the conversation. Maybe we all just decided from way back that we were like, we're not going to let West Side Story win. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, when you're remaking a Best Picture winner and you're going to put it with a, a, a polarizing for. Yeah. Right. So you got that. You got being not the Spielberg. Ricardos. We're not talking about Spielberg. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so and being the Ricardos, you know, could be like, you know, it's an outdated Oscar th- uh, bait thought, just like, you know, Chicago 7 was the year before with the same, you know, person at the helm. And then Nightmare Alley, maybe it's just more of like 
a populist play than it is right. an Oscar play. Um, it's a remake. I believe you said you watched the remake recently, right? Um, in one yeah. of your other episodes. So, mm-hmm. are we going to reward a remake that you know doesn't exactly transcend the the thought of the prior? You know, so if any of those falter, we're talking legit for either Lost Daughter or Tick Tick Boom to maybe steal one of those top 10 spots we're ripe for an upset this year I, yeah. I i agree with that sentiment is it a don't look up it's so funny and it's so brazen that we, we we get behind it is it a power of the dog being propped up by all of the critics awards about to come out and, and being put back on everybody's radar to the point where they do rewatch it and what does that mean it didn't mean great things for us necessarily but it does mean it does, and we still have a profound respect for the power of the dog. And go listen to my Oscar lens uh, that we just did uh, on MMO to where how I, I mean I'll just I'll spoil it. We have it atop so many categories in terms of an obvious nomination based on the read of the room. Right. So I do think the power of the dog deserves that number one spot on your big three. Agree. Don't look up tick tick boom. Those are our two and threes right now. Not what we expected at the beginning of the year. But what I, I'm really excited at where this big three conversation has taken us and how it's evolved throughout the year. Uh, I do I do think Garfield's performance is so theatrical on the one hand, but it is also cinematic. And maybe maybe Netflix was watching that, you know, uh, and they were like, "Is this gonna work necessarily with people?" And and they, they gave it like that soft opening, but it also might have been you know dumb like a fox or whatever yeah. that saying is where they're like all right we'll premiere it late and we'll try this whole late breaker thing and yeah. we'll put it at afi and and you know i'm not gonna underestimate them i think they got some really smart people working there and uh they might have played it just right in a year where all the festival other you know kind of cannibalize each other all the other festival favorites and now they have something on on the rise like a tick tick boom wow i can't believe we went there I know. And I got one last stock up, stock down to to posit to you before we move on here. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Stock up, question mark, Mitchells versus the Machines. Because to me, Gold Derby, uh, even with Encanto now being out, is not their number one movie. They think, put they put Luca yeah. there, which um, you and I have our own issues with Luca. I think Luca's fine. But to me, Mitchells versus the Machines got... This overwhelming, like, that it, you know, advanced the medium conversations. Right. And it, because it came out so early, I think we've kind of forgotten that. But I think when you're talking about them starting in those branches, I wonder if, you know, because Lord Miller already has a lot of respect in those rooms, Do does Mitchell's versus the Machines now take over, you know, and, and in a weaker year, for, for Disney and Pixar, does it take over and and actually maybe have a shot to be the number one in that category? I, again, I wish I was able to do more side watching. I, I've just been so swamped with with everything in my life right now you. that it's I haven't been able to take in Encanto. I've missed multiple opportunities to see that, but I do think, based on perception, that the field has come back to the Mitchells versus the Machines in animated feature. I, I thought that it came out and it had a strong push, and we've seen, you know, movies released in that time frame have yeah. enough. Get legs. out of here, Vivo. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's fine. It, it did what it did. It had a really, mo- it had a moment uh, back in the uh, the early spring 
to where it should be on people's radars. And you, you're, yeah, Clayton Davis has it at second right now on his best animated feature ranking. So I do think it's it's lasted, and I do think that I think the Sony factor is is very much. Uh, present in that branch where they love that style of animation. It worked with Spider-Verse to where, yeah, I do th- I do want to say that the Mitchells versus the Machines is a contender. It's not just going to be a, a likely nominee, but I think that with Encanto and unfortunately for me, Luca, <laughs> those are the big three in animated animation right now. I would want to say Bell should be there. Yeah, I, really I think so that too. Film. That's gotten a lot of buzz from the festival circuit animation is wide open uh i will say this just like jumping down the list like we have i mean we have netflix in every category like we said documentary features probably the biggest disappointment for me with netflix this year. this was like, my stock down that i was gonna posit to you yeah stock down unfortunately I, i'm a fan of procession and pray away and found and sisters on track four really good movies watch them on netflix i love them all i'm i don't think they have juice right now in the category which is unfortunate and i'll be honest with you they don't have juice with me either in terms of my top fives it's just been a great year for documentary features unfortunately so it's just like stock down is is the right way to put it yeah summer soul flea got the early buzz out of sundance and then it just keeps piling on with other ones from there so i i definitely think they're they're out in that category which is wild because they're always in um, yeah. So it, you know what's gonna happen, Mike? We're gonna we're gonna have that discussion. We're gonna say Netflix is out, and then about what a month from now, <laughs> we're gonna have be like, hey, did you guys see that mountain climbing documentary on Netflix? That's gonna peaks. win best picture. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna win best uh, you know documentary over everything else. Uh, it's gonna it, it, something wild might happen because it's always the Netflix factor. But man. <laughs> yeah, I watch Procession. I, I I don't buy it. I don't buy it as being if that's their best shot. I don't buy it. I'm I'm not seeing it either. It's just uh, I'm not again. I'm not seeing the perception. I I think uh, I I think it's just a, a totally atypical of documentaries that have won before. So that's that's all I'll say. I think I I like the movie. I, I approve of the messaging and a power power to them for for putting it out there. Uh, but yeah, that I'm stocked down on that. The Hand of God remains to be seen in international feature, Prayers of the Stolen. And I've noticed the Tambor of Retribution from Saudi Arabia. All selections right now available on Netflix or will be available in the Hand of God's case. So yeah. every category, uh, I know you did uh, a, a, some talk on the acting categories in that passing podcast that you did a couple weeks ago uh, otherwise I, I do think we're going to have another you know we'll have another check-in down the line where we have to kind of you know sink our teeth into really you know, the details of it and yeah by the way Mike Mike and Oscar we kind of do that all year for you guys, so <laughs> check just, us out just, but yeah just a little bit <laughs> anyway spoilers ahead here Hey, I'm Shamar. And I'm Andrew. We're going to be doing a deep dive on all the connected DC animated movies in their cinematic universe. Yes, I'm here to discuss the interconnected storylines and point out how jacked everybody is. And I'm here to share deep comic book knowledge like Batman having his own sneaker line. So check out yet another DC animated podcast. Part of the Forgotten Entertainment family and coming soon wherever you listen to your podcast. 
All right, this is the spoiler section. This is where you want to be if you have seen The Power of the Dog. I know we just did a huge Oscars conversation on both of our pods. Again, go back. If you heard the Netflix conversation, go back and listen to Mike, Mike, and Oscar and hear the Power of the Dog Oscar lens. And if you heard that, then go go to the Nomcast. And you know both our show notes will have when those sections start and end. I think we did a good chunk, like 25-minute unique conversations. This is a true crossover episode on each of our feeds but here is all spoilers all the time going forward for the power of the dog and this is a very spoilerish movie fyi so if you don't want to hear that see the movie we'll be here for you when you get back all right i have a carryover way back from 1920 when we started recording this episode (laughs) (laughs) we do this every time but i love it great conversation the first watch Versus the second watch. Yeah. I was invested in two characters during my first watch. More than most. More than all. Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons. I was just... I mean, they're married in real life. You could tell the on-screen chemistry is there. I was so smitten with Jesse Plemons on that first watch. Where I was so glad and happy that he wasn't lonely anymore. That scene <laughs> broke my heart. Yeah. And put it back together to, again. When they're... Uh, the backdrop of those mountains. And he has that one tear go down. Which is his... Oscar real scene, by the way. Yeah. I think he could get nominated for that scene alone. It was shown on all the late night shows this week uh, and last week. I think Jesse Plemons has a chance at getting nominated from that scene. And it just had me in his corner in that first watch. Now, I watch it a second time. I'm in the camp of Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm a monster, but I am. I'm in the camp of Benedict. I'm two monsters. I, I am just like a tractor beam, fascinated and empathetic towards both Benedict Cumberbatch and Cody Smith McPhee's characters. So my second watch, I'm trying to carve out and understand all these dimensions because they're they're horrible. They're murderers. They're, they're, they abuse animals. Why would I ever care about a character who abuses animals? Right. But he does. He scares the horse. And a good guy, I don't want to watch the stuff in the movie, but at the same time, you're so heartbroken for him and his love lost and the big secret that he hides. I have no, I have no idea. Are you in this kind of, are you more fascinated? Are you more drawn to those characters? How did you deal with your second watch? No, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, you said that you, in, in our text conversations that we we're having that, you know, you felt complete sympathy for Cumberbatch uh, in, in Phil's character the second time around. Wow. And what's wrong with me? Well, no, because I, I, I've kind of felt this myself, and I've also kind of seen it maybe pitched around, because in the first movie, you're following the plot, and you're following this story mm-hmm. of who, what to make of Phil and his just monstrous personality, his overwhelming just sense of, you know, wanting to control his environment to torture people. Gaslighting yeah. was a big conversation in the Q and A after uh, you know New York Film Festival premiere, yes. and this is one of those things where you don't want to root for this guy or you don't want to make him more well rounded. However, now that you know how this movie ends, spoiler: we are in. Uh, Phil dies. <laughs> Phil gets his comeuppance <laughs> for that attitude, and now. As you're watching the second one, you now know that Rose and George are happy and healthy-ish for as much of a, an alcoholic and recovery is. Yeah, uh, for their sakes. Yeah. And then Peter makes out okay as well. So now your focus should be 
on the intricacies of how they position the second half chess match between Phil and Peter. And actually, that's exactly what uh, we said during the text was, you know, you were kind of waiting to be re-engaged like 90 uh, hour, 90 minutes into this movie that you kind yeah. of jump back into this thing after watching it, you know, multiple times or listening to the book, you know, so you, you really, you know, the story. So when does the story come alive again? You seem to think in kind of like the last third. And, and to me, that's when, uh, you know, we're seeing Peter reemerge. So when Peter reemerges yeah. and we know where this is heading, we now get to go and and see the little the little intricacies of how that comes about and now that we know the backstory of Phil and we've gotten it for a second time now we start going was he so unreachable could he have been reasoned with uh you know without manipulation and subversion and ultimately killing him um you know cuz he's a is a man in mourning uh you see all the bronco henry stuff you see all his his, yeah. uh, you know, stuff that he kept for himself, uh, these memories, you know, taking a, a bath in with uh, his uh, yeah. his bandana or his shirt. Like, you're seeing all these things that make him more complex than what he is. He's kind of putting on a facade because not only is he, you know, also, spoiler, secretly gay, but now right. he's also mourning the loss of the one person who potentially understood him. So you got a lot to deal with there and he's lashing out and are you supposed to feel, you know, okay with a guy who has that behavior? No. And that's why you're fine with how the movie ends. But when you rewatch right. it, you kind of start to maybe change the conversation. You engage with the tragedy of it all. And it's because it's unmistakably sewn into the fabric of the film by Jane Campion and by Thomas Savage into the fabric of the story. Because Thomas Savage, this is true to life for him in the sense that he is, you know, he is openly gay in retrospect, but he was closeted back in the 1950s and 40s uh, when when he was writing this to the point where like the pain of this secret and the self-loathing of it back then yeah. destroyed so many lives. The trauma of his love lost films, love lost and Bron Bronco Henry and how it's dominated. It's dominated the way he lives to where it's, he's just kind of living on in tribute of this man. He loved to, to, to the fact that he can kind of rekindle some p weird parallel of that. It, it's never like when you rewatch this movie, you know, there's no pedophilia in here. You know, right. there's no abuse in here beyond the mental and and and, uh, and psychological and verbal, which is, of course, very important. And, and he does bully the child, not the child. I mean, it, it's a college kid. Yeah. How old is he? We don't know. Obviously, the actor is older than the character, but it, they don't cross those lines. And you know that going into the rewatch. So. And I'm I'm rewatching Phil, and I thought he does behave honorably. He's not like the slimy guy seducing the boy, right? That I at least that's my second viewing rewatch. Because even in reading the book and watching it the first time, I'm like, oh, this is getting slimy. How far are they gonna go? He's too young. That's where my concerns lie. But here, I don't get that. So you see the complete breakdown and destruction of Phil's life 
and you, you see the total disconnect he has from his brother and how hard he takes that and how much that breaks his heart and how much it worsens his behavior. He lashes out because he can't connect with anybody. He's got a bunch of yes men. Okie doke laugh along with him yeah. because he's the big boss. Employees. He's got a mother that in the book he basically banishes a mother and a father. He They banish them to an old folks home right. so that he could be the head honcho on the ranch. Their ranch, their childhood ranch. His brother is is so, like to the point where he can't even speak to people, yeah, because he's so browbeaten by by Phil, and I mean, there's no wonder, yeah, they have this di- disconnect in relationship. But this movie, how we see the process of Phil coming back to life based on this relationship with Cody Smith McPhee's Peter character, how they both see the shadow of the dog, the barking dog on the plains and how this, how, I mean, you don't know how much Peter's character is engaging with it in genuine fashion or as a calculating serial killer. So that, that's kind of a question I have for you throughout this plot line. Do you feel like he's more premeditated on second watch? And maybe that's why I, you start to get shudders at that character on rewatched where he goes down a peg or two for us. Maybe we're afraid of him in a way. No, I definitely think it's premeditated. I think he made a decision once he put together uh, the alcoholism of his mother and what the impetus for it was, what the what the like a Correct. cause was there. That I think once he kind of put that together, yeah. it was over. But and there's a very clear causal relationship shown by James Campion between the party that goes just devastatingly wrong for Kirsten Dunst's character of Rose. And the reason why that goes so wrong, it's because she was psyched out by Phil. And more than that. Yeah, for how much I keep saying the words like subtle with this movie, it's it more goes back to me saying it's a death by a thousand cuts. I don't think anything is incredibly subversive or, or off the beaten path enough. I think this is a very straight story. You know, it's yeah. it's basically, you know, a person who, you know, was dominating the people around him, sucking the air out of the room, being... Uh, whether his motivations were genuine or clear or like how those things go fine. But this is a revenge story. This is exactly what he gets for living a life that, you know, he should have, you know, changed his behavior over time to the people who actually cared uh, for him or the people that he should care for by extension uh, being like his sister-in-law and his parents and other things. So he definitely has, uh, his comeuppance come up to him, and I think it's 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 a it's a linear thought for how much we get to be yeah. surprised by the twist ending and everything else. This is a very straight story, and everything makes sense. But I did I I watching it in New York Film Festival for the first time. I felt a lot of people going, <gasps> you know, taking taking yeah. that for a surprise, even though in a way it's kind of obvious. And that was my thinking on the audiobook listen. I'm, I'm gl- and, it, and it played out on the, on the movie screen just how I hoped it would in, in many ways to, with a few caveats. But I, I will say it, it's been a fascinating study. So I, I enter the second watch with mitigating factors or I, I leave the second watch where I'm wondering, you know, how much did my hangry mood affect me, the <laughs> long drive? Maybe I can watch this again on Netflix, which is something I now want to do. I maybe want to show some people the power of the dog and, you know, to kind of dive into more of, 
you know, why things happen. And like you said, like the first time you're trying to figure out the what and the how and this, and now you're, you're you know, on rewatching, it's more about the why. Yeah. And I, I, I won't spoil the book. I, I, te- I, I was, you know, talking to you, I wonder if I should spoil the book. So I, I sorry, I spoiled the book for you, but I won't spoil <laughs> the book for our audience. There's more motivations for why things happen in the book or different motivations, let's say, because there's a lot of motivations here. Yeah. And I will say, I will say Jane Campion does a wonderful job with Kirsten Dunst's character in the B story versus the A story. The yeah. B story winds up being Plemons and Dunst. And the A story, of course, is... And it's set up in Act 1. I mean, the the, the, the t- most terrifying scene in Act 1 is this kid with those flowers, those paper flowers, at that table getting made fun of. And how much is he going to get bullied in that scene? Yeah. And it was just... It, it really broke my heart to see that happening. And you could see how to... Like, Phil's wondering how far to push it. And he has to push it for his chorus of idiots because he's being the you know the tough guy. And and you see how how isolated he becomes after that that's the thing like this movie is moral in the sense mm. and it's from thomas savage's perspective like he doesn't just hate himself for you know the the taboo piece of his identity he hates himself because of the way he acts towards people yes and i think we've all felt that so this becomes kind of this tragic incapable story of or, or a story so this becomes this story of characters who are incapable of forgiving one another. Yeah. And there's no forgiveness here just like there's I, – I don't know. I think it mirrors our society today. There's not enough forgiveness in general. People people will condemn others of doing such wrong that they cancel them or that they cancel culture. Like this is where I get mad at cancel culture, even even though I think cancel culture can be a necessary evil sure. in many an instance. Mike and I have talked about that at length on our show. But it will it would be better if people could understand and forgive and that probably is the way to go. I mean, again, maybe it's my religious upbringing that brings that up. Uh, but this movie is so sympathetic and empathetic on rewatch to the character of Phil. Yeah. And that's why, like, I felt so good coming out of New York Film Festival where I did a Sorkin-esque walk and talk with my friend who was with me where we did a, you know, 30-minute walk back to the train to break down all the different motivations because there's a lot going on. And and you're right. This person, you know, by all rights, if you encountered Phil Burbank, you know, in the the way we see him here, you're going to think he's a monster, he's a jerk, he's, you know— He's full of himself. He's the words to- toxic masculinity have been in every interview I've seen about this movie. However, it's right. not that simple. It's like, yeah, he because he's a man, he can get away with what he's doing. But in a way, his whole life is a lie. And because he's yeah. living a lie, he can't actually work out any of the issues that he has. He can't work out the fact that he's mourning because he has to then admit to other people why he's mourning and his relationship mm-hmm. with Bronco Henry extends way beyond what they think it does. And even to his brother where it's like, maybe you want to have a kinship together because you both learn how to ride from Bronco Henry. And, and but yeah. obviously they can't even mourn in the same way. They can't even, you know, share memories the same way because they experience two different sides of the same man. So, even just that starting point 
makes him going to be worse to his brother. He's going to be worse to the outside world. He's going to hate himself. It's complete self-loathing. And then you, you're just starting with that. And then it goes outward where, you know, he's already lost somebody. So when the wife enters the picture, he thinks he's going to lose his brother, who's the only other person who might, might understand yeah. him on some level that isn't just the head ranch hand. So, like, it's it's got so much meat when you want to talk about it, which I think is why I loved it uh, more coming yeah, out of yeah. the first thing because I got all that out. And now that I got all that out, the rewatch was less – you know, less tension, less to to bite at. Right. You know, this is actually reinvigorating for me, which is no, which me is too. Nice. I, 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 yeah, I have to rewatch it again. But it's also, you know, something to where, you know, we're also two months further into uh, the conversation around the Oscars, and that kind of moves mm. things around the pegs too. <laughs> I, I'll tell you this though, I I, th- I am reinvigorated, like you said, and I. I don't know why maybe it's my sadomasochism and maybe that's the problem with this movie. Like I think what what you want to gravitate towards is the, the happier things about it. And the, the those scenes of cathar- catharsis are there like, they, but they're negative. <laughs> like it's such a soul crushing tragedy yeah. that you feel the humiliations of the characters so much more precisely on rewatch that that's where I'm at now. Like I feel for Rose. I mean, that first watch I, I felt felt for Rose and how, how humiliated she is with the piano and the, and the governor's dinner. But I, even on the second, on the second time, I feel that humiliation for Rose through her son, Peter's eyes. Because now I see him being defensive for his mother in that final act. That's why the, the A story and B story are so well intertwined in this film, even more so than the book, to where you know why. It's it's a causal relationship, like you said before. Peter kills Phil because Phil flies off the handle after the mother sells the hides, yeah. or gives away the hides, instead of he was just going to burn them because he's such a control freak. I, I, he, she defied his orders in that instance, and here he is in front of the son going off on her, and the son can only anticipate his vengeance because he has not missed an opportunity to take vengeance on anyone, as Peter knows all too well. So he fears for his mother in that instance, and it's a major miscalculation from Phil's perspective that he thought he had this son a mama's boy in a good and a bad way at that time, I guess, or regardless, you know, he, he, he did, he underestimated the love this son had for the mother and, it, and he, you know, yeah, it's tragic. And it's the sad thought of like, this was the one time he needed the hides and why'd he need the hides for the rope, for the rope that is for his bonding own with son. the boy. Right. Cause he's doing something genuinely nice. And so the tether yeah. between the two characters. Yeah. So, <laughs> so again, you're talking about a story, B story, the complications of, you know, Phil getting, you know, intertwined in this gambit run by Peter uh, because yeah. of past mistakes. And then also feeling for Phil because he's starting to actually turn around and do nice things and being actually angry about something that you can actually be behind him for, which is sad. It's, it's complicated and sad. So that's the thing. A lot of the best scenes are heartbreaking ones, and we kind of went through our lists 
in that regard. Do you have any other best scenes you want to uh, draw attention to necessarily, or, or we'll go through a few worse here? I think we both loved the the scene where Rose chases after Phil and Peter leaving together on their oh, right. hike. Yes, I mean that's that's a tough watch because that is her. I believe you wrote it as kind of like her Oscar real scene, and and that is absolutely true. The the helplessness that she feels while also being a drunk, uh, you know, trying yeah, to yeah. to run from the inside of the house and trying to stop what's happening. Her husband doesn't feel what she feels, so they he won't even help her. He's you know just trying to to pass it off. It's sad to watch. It's hard. But man, that is that is probably one of the the better late stage scenes, yeah. uh, especially from her. I'll tell you what what broke my heart in that scene as well. I mean, she her acting is, is spectacular, and if she wins, that's why. Yeah. But what broke my heart was Jesse Plemons defending his brother in that scene. I'm I'm an oldest yeah. brother of four, and it it ruined me to see Jesse Plemons after all he's been through with his brother. He knows the history. And now you understand that he knows, he knows his secrets. He understands because you cannot, you cannot just talk that away unless you know the Bronco Henry mentor mentee relationship. That of course must have saved his brother because he was a flame out at Yale. We don't know. I'm sorry, I don't want to spoil the book. <laughs> the the, uh, the Phil character, yeah, the Phil character has done nothing but assassinate himself, especially in the eyes of the, his brother during this plot line. So why would the brother defend him unless it's Stockholm Syndrome? But I don't think the brother at that point gives any Fs to where the Stockholm Syndrome would raise his ugly head yeah, necessarily in that moment. So I think the brother recognizes the relationship between Phil and Bronco Henry, at least in the past, to where he sees... He sees Phil helping the boy, teaching him how to ride, even though there's some, again, humiliations involved with that. There's still enough respect there. And George notices, Plemons notices where he defends, you know, in front of his wife, who that's all he cares. That's his whole world right now. Yeah. It's the one person who actually he can connect with. Yeah. Yeah, so he wouldn't risk his relationship with Rose to allow his brother to hurt his stepson right that's my that's again i'm just reading context clues so it broke my heart to in that scene to see george's reaction to it all i guess that's my i i want to film study this further but that yeah you're absolutely right that scene was tremendous it's very powerful and then i also want to just mention because it's a big part of this movie the tense moments uh between piano and banjo is, oh yeah, you know you can't undersell those either. They weirdly enough, uh, when you're first watching, a lot of laughter in these scenes in in the True. movie theater because he's torturing her, but kind of in a funny way. You know, even in my last watch, yeah, people were laughing. And you know, I mean, listen, I am full banjo. You know that about me, Mike. <laughs> I, I am I am Kermit the Frog in Deliverance every day of my life. Those are the, you the are... things that matter to me the most. <laughs> You are chaps. You are stock up on chaps. You're stock up on banjo. Yes. Stock always, always been up always. on banjo. It's, okay. it's a part Got of me. It. It's the way I live. And, you know, this scene, uh, I was very impressed with, you know, the playing, the way they used it. And then later, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch using it as the whistle to the theme is very, very haunting and effective. And uh, if anyone wanted to watch that yeah. uh, Q&A, that was Cumberbatch. Um, he came up with that, and he kind of worked with that, and and 
you know, is from a guy who did the whole thing meta. It's a guy you could definitely root for with all the stories to say that's a best actor per- type performance from him. So those scenes equal that for for that for me uh, for a lot of the best parts of this movie. I, I love those pulls absolutely. So those are best scenes. Let's end with a few worse. I don't love ending with worse, but I, I do think it's important to you know mention. And if anybody is you know, listening to this before they've seen the movie, there might be trigger warnings. I may, maybe we should have meant, well, I don't know if we mentioned it in non-spoilers now I'm feeling bad, but Phil scaring the horse excruciating to watch, uh, the, I thought we mentioned that in we non- our 75 yeah, yeah. minute yeah. non-spoiler section <laughs> yeah. at some point. Uh-huh. Uh, but also like the bulls, the rabbits, like this movie breaks my heart. And I, I'm not necessarily a, a bleeding one as much as Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, but I do, I do have a affinity for animals and this was, I mean, I go, yeah. it's, it's, it's time. It, it's period representation of that time. It's life on a farm. It's life it's on a cruel farm. Realities. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is what it is, right? I mean, they're not hurting animals in real life, but it is on the screen and it does break your heart. It's tough to watch. Yeah. And then add in a person who's trying to become a doctor and a surgeon one day. And you're adding that, extra layer of creep <laughs> you know just some oh, of yeah. these scenes uh you know between dead animal carcasses or you know snapping necks and and or doing surgery like there's a bunch of stuff that really yeah. gets you um but and thomas and mckenzie's reaction yeah absolutely yeah her one big scene there uh that where she yeah. gets to to jump back which again how gross it was elicited a big laugh uh when they uh, oh. showed the <laughs> the bunny in the in the moment so um you know, again, because it's it, it's you either laugh or you cry about it, right, Mike? And that's the only two oh uh, guttural reactions for a, a bunny split wide open getting its uh, surgical uh, part done when they thought, "Hey, cool, we have a new pet." No, we don't. Um, so it, it's oh. it's 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 tragic, but absolutely, it, it's a weird weird movie. <laughs> that's why I'm saying, like the the life of it on Netflix. I don't know, man. It's gonna be short. <laughs> I, I well again I could see people getting turned against the movie just based on that in, totally. in the academy and otherwise so that yeah that does factor in uh, I will say that the Bible verse inclusion bothered me at the end it's on and the it's nose not the, I don't I'm, I'm not saying anything yeah I'm not saying anything about the Bible verse I'm just saying it's on the nose because it has the title in the movie right in the Bible verse deliver my darling from the power of the dog <laughs> however it's the Family Guy thing the, <laughs> yeah uh, on the flip side of that. It is a prayer to God there where someone hopes to keep people away from the rage of wicked men, the wickedness of men. I mean, that's I went to Bible verse meaning websites and I, I, I got that interpretation. And my God, does that add a layer to this film? So it works thematically. I just it bothers me just to have the title and the saying and the, the verse. And why do you have to do it there? It's almost like they didn't find a, a time elsewhere in the movie to put it in. So that's wrong. I, I mean, I feel bad that. Peter is trying to protect his mother from Phil's wrath there. You feel as though he is saying that about his mom. He's like, I I, I pray to God that my mom won't get tossed to the wolves. And I, I but in that scene it has the dual meaning of, oh, here Phil was tossed to the wolves his whole life. Yeah. And even though he became a wolf, he became, you know, with this power of the dog, so to speak. Um I mean we all we all have it in us, which again you know, speaking, maybe I'm I'm projecting, but it feels like this movie is kind of just the there's just the audacity of the project to make us relate to Phil's character at all. Yeah, 
is a treatise on the necessity for forgiveness. Mike, I mentioned it when we talked about it after New York Film Festival. Jane yeah. Campion is a savage. <laughs> she, awesome. I love her. She, I, I, I was going to mention this in our final grades, but I'll start it here. Please, we're ready. <laughs> she <laughs> almost relishes. She gets great delight in having audiences squirm. Her audiences, yeah. she she go every single movie she does is a slow burn that is either a tragic romance or ends in some yeah. explosive, heartbreaking, gut wrenching type of ending where you have complicated feelings. It's never like just relief. <laughs> you know, it's always like, mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. it ended, didn't it? <laughs> it's 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 just kind of like putting it in your lap, like here. This was hard to deal with, wasn't it? And that's what she <laughs> likes. Look at the piano. I watched Bright Star last night. That movie yeah. is just, oh, isn't it great they're in love? Cool. Let's wait till he dies. And then uh, we're just going to go, wasn't that tragic? And that's your movie. That's the whole movie. You're, technically, you're supposed to know that based on the No, I is. mean, it's in the description uh, yeah. of Keats, yes. Yeah, but, yeah, but. Yeah. If you know, for a movie that you're trying to just follow, well, what's the angle? The angle is I love someone and then he dies. So like, (laughs) so it's like okay, that's tough. So it's uh, you know, and and there's a lot more to it than I'm I'm being very reductive. But that is Jane Campion, where she likes to you know just twist and twist and and pull at you and just not let you off the hook at all in in the most subtle of ways but man is it effective you're right she's a badass and savage when you say it from our perspective from a steak eating man perspective <laughs> is means a good thing it means that yeah we're, we're we're hyped on jane campion for this award season and yeah I'm, I'm interested to continue to study this i'm interested to review this with mike one maybe on a future astro race checkpoint maybe one of the next two that's what's coming next from us at mmo andrew please do your outro thing here what's coming next for you on the nomcast well i'm sure we're going to have a lot of crossover talk uh mike in terms of that because you know we still have uh, these other Oscar films, Don't Look Up, The Lost Daughter, The Hand of God, all to come in December. So I'm going to be very busy. I also, you know, I, even as a, a a person who was raised Christian and now live in a house full of uh, Jewish folk, um, I still am going to cover Christmas season. Uh, and I kind of get my, my jolly jollies off uh, doing it uh, through the, the Netflix films and Boy, do they have a bunch of ones that are oh, yeah. all in the top 10 right now. Uh, Boy yeah. Called Christmas just came out. Uh, there's a Sean the Sheep one if you're into him. Uh, there's a Robin Robin from the, the Aardvark group there just did one that was uh, released on Thanksgiving Day, I believe. And then, uh, yeah, just uh, Love Hard already came out and was in the top 10. There's a <laughs> bunch of stuff. And so we're going to cover... All of it, slowly but surely, um, and I'm still trying not to get goaded into watching all of the Christmas Switch movies. So, oh, those yeah, ones yeah, are so, watchable, aren't they? Yeah, I think. Uh, look at I, I. I'm envious of you right now because Mike and I's schedule has no room for any Christmas movies, as far as I'm concerned. Right, as far as I could see, and that's and it really hurts me because the last few years we've done a lot with Christmas movies and we've got playlists out there. But you know, again, I keep I shamelessly plugging everything in this episode no it's beautiful past. man i don't know why i do that uh but i i i, 
I love doing Christmas stuff. I don't know where we could do it. We got West Side Story, Nightmare Alley, Don't Look Up, et cetera, et cetera. One banger after the next, yeah. which is why I think this season still could fill up. Cyrano, a hero, et cetera. Yeah. It could fill up. And I, unfortunately, the power of the dog, it's out front. And like you said, maybe maybe, maybe you're right on. Maybe it's, it is a 7-8 nomination because a couple categories fall through. And it's such a tough watch. Yeah. <laughs> we forgot to give grades. I'm, t- I'm doing such a bad job as a host on the way out here. But uh, B plus 88 is where I still have. I, I, I might ding it a point but I, I don't i think i talked myself back up with you today what where are you at uh what rubric do you use here what, what, what are you thinking yeah so i'm in a similar camp i think i started at probably like an 89 so i was a slightly higher thought than you coming out i think that's festival yeah. high it just added that extra point Good. you know what i mean uh sure and watching it in an optimal setting the thing that's gnawing at me of how generous i'm gonna be for other movies that have this kind of you know, twist ending that is delightful. They're, you know, The Sixth Sense and The Usual Suspects are rewatchable, even despite the fact that they have a very twist ending because you love to go back and watch the breadcrumbs and the chess match and the whole, the unfolding of sure, all the absolutely. issues. Yep. I didn't feel that this one was as clever in its design, even though we were reinvigorated about a lot of the elements. Until now, maybe, though? That's the thing. Right. Like, I, I want to rewatch it now because I'm like, wait, am I theory? Yeah. yeah. I'm interested. It could, but you were also the person who was like, I wasn't reinvigorated until, you know, we're getting back into the chess match. So Act three. Yeah. So is it, wor- is it that kind of design that's going to make me less wanting to rewatch it once it gets on Netflix? Or where does it go in my head as we progress through award season so i think i'm maybe in like uh, you know again like you maybe ding it a down a point or two maybe an 87 88 versus like the high of come seeing gotcha. it in its optimal conditions uh at new york film film festival yeah i think i, I want to study it is that's where i'm at like i i won't i won't be afraid of studying it again and, and watching it again, and I'll, I'll do that on Netflix for sure. Uh, Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram, at MM and Oscar on Twitter. Did you mention your socials? I'm forgetting now. Uh, or no, please do. At NomCastPod on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Facebook, you know, the NomCast, the Netflix original movie podcast, and of course, our website, NomCastPod.com. All right. I'm not a good as good of a host as Mike. Uh, compatriot there mike one i can't i look forward to talking to him next episode but i i really appreciate you doing this andrew and for both our pods and mike one i really appreciate you editing this monster <laughs> <laughs> once again how do we do that every time we do this uh I'll, I'll shut up now uh andrew uh please sign off for us yeah thank you so much for for having me do this as well mike and of course as a word season progresses i'm sure we'll see lots and lots more of each other and if not listen to mike mike yes. and oscar because they do a much better job than i do without the netflix focus so thanks again sir for having me now i loved hearing your netflix fandom on this episode too like the fandom came through that that i that passion that speaks to me so it was was awesome to hear all right guys we'll see you next time